Well, I like to uh, throw a curveball. Now that I'm back from Nigeria, we're going to uh, divert a little bit from our normal schedule. So your a month-long bulletin is completely messed up from here on out until we get into December. So you're welcome for that. We are going to talk about hard work this morning, though. We'll call this Hard Work Volume 1, next week Volume 2 back in Colossians. But we're going to look at Proverbs chapter 6 this morning, among several other scriptures. So... Uh, be ready to, uh, to turn if you want to follow along throughout the Bible. Our key words this morning for our worshipers and training will be work, hard, and sluggard. And if you're trying to find Proverbs 6, you can find that on page 531 in your blue ESV Bible in the seat back in front of you. And so, as I said, instead of jumping back into Colossians right away, we're going to take a detour. We're going to spend two weeks on this issue that comes up in Colossians at this point where we are at the end of chapter 3 and moving into chapter 4. Paul in Colossians is talking about masters and servants and bondservants and work and how all of that plays out in the life of the Christian. But before we do that, I want to give us a broader overview of what the Bible says about work. Because it's a big issue throughout all of the Bible. The Bible has a lot to say about work and how it affects all of us. So we're not going to have just one, but two weeks to talk about work. Now, several years ago, I spent, uh, I spent a while studying the Proverbs struck by how often this issue of work continues to come up. And then I saw all these varied connections with various other parts of the Bible. So we're going to think deeply about work, and specifically we'll look at what the Bible says about it in the Proverbs. Now, if you're visiting with us for the first time, I will mention this is not typical. We generally work through books of the Bible verse by verse or have a specific series or section of Scripture. Uh, So what I'm doing is unique, but I think it's helpful. I think it's It's important for us to remember uh, what the Bible says on the whole sometimes when we look at specific uh, categories or specific subject matter that the apostle is dealing with in his letter. And so I want to see what the Bible says about hard work, but we're going to contrast that this morning more specifically with what the Bible says especially about the sluggard. And the Bible says a lot about the sluggard, and so we're going to see what that is. Now, as Americans, we live in a sort of TGIF culture, always waiting for the weekend to come. Monday begins, and uh, in the words of some of uh, if you're old enough to know this movie, that we all have a case of the Mondays sometimes, um, and we uh, move on through the week as though Monday is, uh, is the worst day of the week. We're trying to get to Friday Because when Friday comes, we know it's time for the weekend. And now maybe you have a job that you can't wait to leave every day. You just feel sick right now over the fact that I'm even talking about work. You want to put it aside. It is the Lord's day. We should be able to rest and not have to think about work. That's not till tomorrow. But tonight around 8 or 9 o'clock when you're getting ready for the day tomorrow, you start to get a pit in your stomach. And here we go again. We start all over. There certainly are people on the other end of the spectrum. They're workaholics. 
They eat and sleep and breathe their work. They wake up and get to work immediately, checking their emails before they get out of bed. They're working in the car. They're working at the dinner table. They're working on vacation. When they close their eyes, they're thinking and dreaming about work. All they do is work, work, work without any rest at all. And so, like most things, we sort of have this spectrum as it pertains to work. Those who refuse to work at all are on one end, the Bible speaks to them, and those who are addicted to their work at the other end, and the Bible certainly speaks to that as well. So perhaps you fall in one of these categories more likely than not. We all fall somewhere on the spectrum in between. So according to Scripture, what is work? Where does it come from? Why does it exist? And how should we be thinking about it? Those are some things that we're going to consider this morning. So, first of all, what is work? Well, very simply, we understand that work is any physical or mental activity in order to achieve a purpose or a result, especially pertaining to one's job. Now, I want you to note that this doesn't include anything about pay because there are legitimate forms of work that do not include receiving a paycheck. So perhaps you are a stay-at-home mom and you stay home and you homeschool your children or you're a housewife and you do that and there's a task to be completed and it certainly is work even though it doesn't, uh, it doesn't end with monetary compensation. You don't get paid in money for doing what you do but it's a very important job. So work can be all sorts of things. Work is even, believe it or not, a pastor studying or a carpenter in his wood shop or a a roofer on top of a house or a mom at the park with her children or a counselor sitting and listening to someone's story or a manager in a fast food restaurant or a computer programmer sitting in front of his screen. So work comes in all different forms and we have a lot of different work represented here this morning. It certainly comes in the form of that which provides an income in most cases but not always. So particularly for those of you here, if you, are, uh, if you stay at home and you work from home with your children especially, don't tune out because this applies to you just as much. It's not just about those who have a regular nine to five. So where does work come from? Before we jump into the Proverbs, I think it's important for us to think about where it comes from in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis 1, there are three important things that we see that help us understand where work comes from and what it is. In the first place, we need to start with is God himself. And we get no further than verse 1 of Genesis 1 to see work happening. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God was working And you're very likely with the creation account of Genesis 1 and 2 and where the magnificent work of God is on display over the span of time that he creates the specific elements of life that verse 1 summarizes as the heavens and the earth. And so we see God himself as a working God. And he doesn't stop in Genesis with creation. God is constantly at work. He's working through providence every moment of every day in all of creation in your life and in mine. He's at work in redemption, rescuing his people from darkness and granting them new life in Christ. 
He brings them into this glorious light. That is a work of God. He's at work in bringing all things to their final consummation according to His perfect will. God is at work in sustaining all things. Remember, remember we saw early in Colossians chapter 1 what it said about Jesus. He is the, he's not only the, the creator through whom all things were created, but he's also the sustainer by whom all things are sustained. And if he stopped working and sustaining all things for even one second, everything would fall into disarray and nothingness. And so God is actively at work at all moments, at all times, in all days. And so it's not hyperbole to say that if God were to stop, that we would cease to exist entirely. He is constantly at work, and we we saw that several weeks ago. And so now we see as a part of God's creative work in Genesis 1 that He created mankind. But He created mankind very special in that He created us imago Dei. We are creatures created in God's image. And as such, we are made as workers with a specific task. What is that task? He tells us in Genesis 1.26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then in chapter 2, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And so this activity of taking dominion over the earth and working and keeping the garden is something that, uh, that theologians have called the cultural mandate. And as, as man has been created in God's image, man has been created as a worker. And so therefore, mankind, both men and women, have the responsibility to harness and to utilize the earth's resources for both service and work and enjoyment. And hopefully you're realizing here that work doesn't come after the fall in Genesis 3. It comes before the fall. And that's very significant because it means that the first instance of mankind working isn't once sin enters into the world. The first job that was given in the Bible was given to Adam by God in the Garden of Eden before sin had entered. He was to cultivate the ground. He was to take dominion over the earth. And the idea is that the boundaries, the borders of the garden would expand until they covered the whole of the earth. That takes a lot of work. Now, it seems like such a mundane job, doesn't it? He's basically a gardener for all intents and purposes, that he's caring for everything. But it's, it's a dignified and holy job because it provided, and God called it good. And in fact, we can say that all legitimate work that is done to the glory of God is dignified work. It's legitimate work. There are no jobs that are, are lesser than others just because it doesn't take as much skill, perhaps, or as much education. Uh, maybe it doesn't pay as high as others, but that doesn't mean it's not legitimate or necessary or important work. For those who work hard in callings that are not sinful, the Lord blesses and uh, esteems. And so work is what we call a creation ordinance. It's something that was ordained by God 
in creation, which means that work is good and holy and right and is assigned to all of mankind as a duty of, of our humanity. And so when men and women do legitimate work, it is good and holy and right because it is a reflection of the image of God, of a God who himself is a worker. But just because work is a gift from God, just because work is ordained by God, just because work is required by God and is a reflection of the image of God, it doesn't mean it's easy. And there's a reason for that, and we know the reason for that is in Genesis chapter 3, because work is involved in the curse as a result of the sin of our first parents. We know that our work will be difficult. We know in Genesis 3.17 it says, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, he's talking to Adam, and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. And so we have a problem, don't we? Because we're made in God's image, we are designed, we are created to work, And in our work, we are called to reflect the glory and the excellence and the creativity of God in the world. However, our work is hindered by thorns and thistles. We will have problems. We will have failures. We will have difficulties. We will have frustrations. We will have headaches. We will have disagreements. We will have broken parts. We will have weeds. We will have complex formulas. We will have fatigue. We will have endless paperwork and on and on and on, right? However, the Bible could not be more clear than what we read from the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. And then he goes on to say, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. And so you see, work itself is not a product of the fall. Work came first. But all of the problems that come with work, all of the frustrations and all of the headaches, all of the thorns and thistles, those are products of the fall, and we are all affected by them. The thing for us to remember is implied in the necessity to work that we see in the law of God. As Christians, hopefully we understand that the the law of God was given for three important reasons. And the third of those reasons is that we have a rule of life that we can live by. And so the moral law of God, more specifically the Ten Commandments, or the Decalogue, tells us how we are to live in obedience to God in right relationship with Him. And so there's actually two of the Ten Commandments that relate directly to work. One of them mentions it specifically, and the other one is implied. So first, in the fourth commandment, and we know the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall, what? Labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And he goes on to explain what the Sabbath is. And so notice the law says, six days you shall labor and do your work. So you see in the Sabbath command, The fourth commandment, it's not just a command about rest, but it's also a command about work. 
The rest that's given in the Sabbath is a reward from working. It is the rest that God has given to us as a result of laboring day by day among the thorns and the thistles. But to get the reward of rest, what are we called to do first? To work, which is the first, in the first century generally meant that you're working six 12-hour days, not five 8-hour days or four 10-hour days. We are spoiled. <laughs> no other culture has ever really known work to be what we have in our society today. A 40-hour work week as a full-time job is in our culture, but in most places, that's just getting started for the week. So six days you shall labor. That's what the commandment says. The other commandment is the eighth commandment, which says, you shall not steal. Well, how does that relate to our work? What's implied? What's implied is don't steal. Don't take what is not yours, but instead, what should you do? You should work for it. You should earn it. We must work for what we have or want and not take it away from others. And so we've seen work is a gift from God. It is a creation ordinance that all of mankind is responsible for. It is the means by which God provides for his people and by which we fulfill our calling to live as those created in reflecting God's image. However, it's a gift and a command of God's law that was frustrated by the fall. And as a result, we are left to do our work, but not without great stress and not without great difficulty. And naturally, we don't like that, do we? And I wonder, have you ever considered that the problem with your work is not the work in and of itself, but it's in large part the frustrations that have come as a result of sin? It's a result, oftentimes, of our own sin, our own attitudes. As with all areas of our lives, sin plays prominently in our work as well. And the book of Proverbs identifies that the most common tendency that comes in terms of our work is that we are all prone to laziness. And I said earlier, yes, workaholism, work, work, workaholism, I guess that's a word. Let's go with it. It's a serious error. It's a problem. It is something that is real. However, even those who are workaholics tend toward our natural inclination, and that is laziness. And especially in our culture, we have plenty of ways to be lazy. And so the issue that Solomon spends the most time on with regard to work in the Proverbs is this issue of laziness. Because let's face it, even when we are busy... It's often that we are busy because prior to being busy, we were lazy and we procrastinated and we put things off in favor of our recreations and our pleasures, so we get really busy trying to catch up. And so let's see what the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 6. We'll begin here, but we'll look in other places. In verse 6, it says, now I want to mention throughout the Proverbs, Solomon isn't pulling any punches when he's assigning specific titles to people. Now, whereas in our culture, we might look at a 35-year-old man who still lives on his mom's couch and specializes in making memes for his Facebook group. 
but doesn't have a job and is struggling to find one, we might say he is struggling to get motivated or he is lacking gainful employment or he's occupationally distressed. (laughs) The Bible tells us what's really going on. Solomon gets, he cuts through all of that and he says, this man is a sluggard. And a sluggard is identified as a fool. And so you see this all throughout, this juxtaposition between the wise man and the foolish man. And the foolish man is the one who lacks wisdom, and the man who lacks wisdom lacks a knowledge and a fear of God. And so a fool is one who rejects not only the Creator, but also creation's design, including the design to work. The sluggard is a fool, and a fool lacks wisdom to work hard. So Solomon gives the sluggard a very direct admonition. Let's look in verse 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. And so Solomon is pointing out here to the sluggard that God has something to show him. Even in the ant Without someone standing over the ant and telling her what to do, without being spoon-fed instructions, without making excuses and saying, well, I didn't know, nobody told me. She is organized, she is prepared, she is hardworking. She doesn't need external leaders who will organize her work for her. What it will be, when it should be completed, the ant has a God-given wisdom to work and the God-given ability to work wisely and orderly, not putting things off until it's too late. And so the implication for the sluggard is you can do this as well. Get off the couch and do something. There's much for the sluggard to learn from the example of the ant. But what does the sluggard do instead? We find in verse 9, How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So the diligent work, the industriousness, the foresight, the planning and organization of a simple little ant provides a stark contrast to the sluggard who lies in his bed and sleeps all day. And we'll look at this aspect a little while later, but you see the difference that's drawn here. Surely, you've, you've watched a team of ants before as they get in line and they march in order and they, they move their food and they move their grains of sand that will be used for their shelter. It's an amazing thing to see. Did you know that an ant can carry up to 50 times their own weight just in their mandibles? And to think that they only live for two months before they die. Their life is spent working. The sluggard, his life is spent sleeping. Now, you might be thinking right now, well, I'm not a sluggard. I don't just lay around all day sleeping my time away, and I'm glad about that for you. However, we need to expand this principle a little bit here and think beyond physical sleeping and ask some questions of ourselves. How much time... Do we willfully waste because we're, we're too lazy to get to the work that we're called to do? 
Maybe you have a job where you can spend your time on your cell phone throughout the day. Maybe you spend your time looking at Facebook or sending text messages. Is that what our employers are paying us to do? Unless you work for Facebook, probably not. It's a, it's a lazy approach, right, to work. It's stealing from our employers. It's doing exactly what we said the commandment tells us not to do. Maybe you're a homemaker, and there are plenty of things to do around the house that can be distractions. So how do you deal with those distractions in order to focus on your main objective? How do you put those aside to do what you are called to do? Well, think of other descriptions of the sluggard from Proverbs. Look at Proverbs fifteen nineteen. This might help answer some of the questions we're asking a bit more honestly. Proverbs fifteen nineteen. It says, "The way of a sluggard is like a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a level highway." What does that mean? Well, in the eyes of the sluggard, it's saying everything is just too difficult. The way forward, it's too tough. In fact, it might be dangerous. It might be unwise. So he just says everything out there, it's all surrounded by, by a hedge of thorns. Have you ever been in that state of mind? Perhaps as a student, you have papers to write, assignments to complete, several projects to do, or, or, uh, or something that you need to, to memorize, your times tables, or uh, or your Latin grammar, or whatever it is you're studying, and you have something to do, and it's, it's too difficult, it's too much, so I'm just not going to do it at all, I'm going to put it aside. And before you know it, weeks and weeks have passed, and all of it is due tomorrow, I'm just not ready. So what's the best thing to do when you have a ton of stuff to do? Well, the sluggard, having put it off this long, will say, it's too difficult, it's just too much, and so instead... He's going to turn on the television or play a video game. He's done. And I love how sarcastic and playful the Proverbs can be at times. In two different places, Solomon writes the same thing in 22.13 and in 26.13. He writes this, The sluggard says, There's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets. So the picture here is a, a grown man who's lying around all day and, and his mom comes and tells him, you need to get out there and get a job. It's been 35 years, it's time. And what does he say? He says, well, mom, I would love to do just that, but you know, there's a lion outside and as soon as I go out there, he's going to get me. You see, sluggards have excuses, one after the other after the other. They make excuse after excuse for why things don't get done and why they're just better off being lazy. This man has an an irrational fear, and while we see it as absolutely ridiculous, he believes what he says. And so surely nobody can fault him for staying home when there's a possibility of being mauled to death by a lion. Now, you, you might not be willing to admit it out loud, but has this ever been true of you? It may not be irrational fear that drives us to laziness, but we are certainly no strangers to making excuses, are we? You know, I'd really like to do that report that my boss has been asking for, but I'll get to it. But right now, I'm feeling a bit parched, so I need to go get something to drink. 
And you know, I, I, wanted to, I did want to check and see how Jim was, was doing. He had a pretty bad sunburn after we went out on the boat last weekend. Um, oh, I need to swing by the bathroom real quick. Oh, I forgot to see if Larry responded to my friend request on Facebook. I just remembered they're having a Veterans Day sale on Amazon. I wonder what I can find on Amazon, right? You see how easy it is. We're all prone to hop from one thing to the other, and none of them has anything to do with our work. Bruce Waltke comments on this lion-fearing sluggard, and he says, he's represented as finding fantastic and preposterous excuses to demonstrate that no idea is too odd or fantastic to him to keep him on welfare. His life and the community is not in danger from his phantom lion in the streets, but from his lazy lifestyle. So you see, the danger is not out there. The danger is not lurking in the streets. The danger is in here in our own hearts. Well, what else do we learn from the Proverbs about the, str- about the sluggard? In chapter 18 and verse 9, we read a very unflattering description. It says, whoever is slack in his work is a, is a brother to him who destroys. The man who neglects his responsibilities, not tending to his field, not caring for his animals, is neglecting the important means God has provided that he might live. But his laziness has led to rot and decay. He is, according to the proverb, a brother to him who destroys. Now think of someone who comes in the middle of the night and destroys a field of crops or, or vandalizes the, the property. And Solomon's telling us the man who is a sluggard is no different than the man who comes in and destroys. And even more pernicious is that he's doing it all in his own field to his own goods and he's ruining his own livelihood and his own family. Now, I know there's several of us here. We enjoy gardening. And I remember several years ago, I was having a tough time with several different kinds of insects. They were coming onto my plants. We were getting this, this fungus on them. And over time, it just gets to be a lot of work. You have to do it every day. I was dealing with all these, these factors. I'm calling Jeff. Hey, what do I do? He told me I didn't want to do it. It was just too much to spend time on anymore. So what did I do? I did what every great gardener does, and I just let it go. I didn't pull up the bad plants. I didn't try to keep the good ones going. I just left it. Well, the problem was that the next year, because of my laziness and neglect the year before, I not only had to take out those plants, but then I had to replace the soil as well. I wasted what could have been very valuable. It was a foolish move because I wasn't willing to do the work that was required. I was frustrated, so I just let it go. But something we so often learn from our laziness is in that in the end, it often comes with more work, not less. We may be comfortable in the moment, but the time will come when we must pay the debt that is owed for our lack of diligence. And along those lines, Proverbs 20 and verse 4 says, The slugger does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. It's a warning about procrastination. Are you a procrastinator? Now, some of you may say that about yourself. It's not a virtue, by the way. 
I remember in school, there were always a lot of people the night before a paper was due. I had a roommate in college, and about 2 a.m., I'm trying to sleep, and all I hear is... He's writing his paper that's due in about six hours. Everything down to the wire all the time. Well, we learn from here that this is something that can cost you dearly. Notice, notice the sluggard came to Autumn and said, Plow? Why do I need to plow? It's autumn. Or in the United States, we say it's, it's fall. So he refused to prepare his land in March, so when it was time to plant the harvest later on, he had nothing. He waited. He chose instead to sleep through the cold season instead of putting in the time that he might be ready when the time came. A little further down the page, in verse 13, we read, Love not sleep, lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes, and you will have plenty of bread. The sluggard chooses sleep over work. And he does that specifically in the season where it seems like it's not a big deal. And as a result, he comes in the end to poverty because he waited too long. If only he would have opened his eyes and raised up from his slumber, he would have plenty to eat. There may be a delay, but the sluggard will eventually pay for his procrastinating, lazy decisions. Now, look at chapter 26 and verse 14. It says, as a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. There's really three things that he's pointing out here with the sluggard. And this gives a really good summary picture of who the sluggard is. The first word picture is that of a door. The sluggard lays on his own bed, and the only movement we get out of him is turning on his side like a door turns on its hinges. Now, let's be fair to the door. At least the door is doing what it's supposed to do and fulfilling its purposes, right? The sluggard wastes his day rolling around in his bed. Now, I'll be honest, this next part is one of my favorite parts of all of Scripture. I think it's hilarious. We have a man who is exerting no more effort than turning on his bed, and the sustenance he's given is in a bowl. But he's so lazy, he's so unwilling to do any work at all, and Proverbs 19.24 says this also, that he buries his hand in the dish, and he will not even bring it up to his mouth. So I, I picture a man laying on his back, He's got a bowl of Doritos resting on his fat belly like a little built-in shelf. And he puts his hand in the bowl and he just leaves it there because he's too lazy to go from the bowl to his mouth. Now that is lazy. And it's easy to hear that and be really self-righteous and say, well, at least I'm not that guy. But the principle here is what we're after, right? Have you ever noticed how tired people are who don't do anything? Just thinking about the possibility of actually working wears them out. Man, I sent three resumes this week. I'm exhausted. I just binge-watched every episode of my favorite show on Netflix. I cannot possibly sit down and fill out a job application. I stayed up too late talking with my friends, so I have to sleep this morning, and now it's heating up outside, so that yard work is just going to have to wait for another day. 
but honey, how, how can I, 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 I can't, we can't get out of the door because the bushes are pushing up against the door. Yes, but we can just go out a side window or something, right? We have all these crazy excuses. Why am I not going to do this? I have a reason why. But the ultimate reason why is because it's a lot easier to just put it off another day. And the sluggard is wiser in his own mind than even the wisdom of seven men. This guy is absolutely convinced of his own wisdom and certainly doesn't see himself as he truly is. In his mind, he's a hard worker. In his mind, he's doing everything he can. In his mind, he's not the problem. It's not him, it's them. It's all of those people. They don't know what they're talking about. They just don't understand. Just because there's seven of them and one of me doesn't mean that they're right. And while that might be the case, it's actually very rare that we're correct as the minority when we're dealing with those who are wise and godly. The principle here is that the sluggard is unteachable. He doesn't receive correction. He won't take input. He won't ask for anyone to give him any kind of feedback. It's purely a matter of circumstance for him. Do you ever find yourself in that position? The reason you're not getting anything done, the reason you're putting off the things you need to do and pursuing leisure instead is because of the circumstances? Others just don't understand Is your assessment maybe of the whole situation, have you even considered whether or not it's maybe a bit off? Are you simply unwilling to hear the counsel of others because you assume you've got it all figured out? If so, the Bible doesn't just say you're a sluggard when it comes to work. It says you're a fool. And so often, someone who's lazy assumes their laziness is is their issue to deal with and it doesn't affect anyone else. But that's not true at all, is it? When has there ever been a sin committed that doesn't affect everyone else? Proverbs 10.26 says, Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the sluggard to those who send him. You ever drink vinegar? It doesn't feel great on your teeth. Smoke in the eyes where it burns and you have to turn away. You may receive counsel from seven godly wise people and reject it all. And in so doing, you become a burden. It's, it's this irrationality that is like smoke in the eyes and acidic bitter taste in their mouth. The sluggard is a drain on those who seek to offer help. You're just draining the life out of everyone. You're, they don't even want to be around you because it, it burns their eyes. It leaves this taste in their mouth. And so let's get to the heart of what's going on with the sluggard. Proverbs 24, 30 and 34. It says, I pass by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want like an armed man." So, Do you see what happens with those who disdain God's gift of work for their lives? It all comes to ruin. God has provided a means for all of us to receive sustenance, and yet the sluggard refuses to embrace it as a gift and wickedly holds it in contempt. This is the very thing that makes laziness so sinful. 
God promises us that he will provide for our needs, and he does so through the means of work. He gives his people multiple opportunities. He gives us physical strength. He gives us soundness of mind. But in the end, if we refuse to work, we are wickedly rejecting that which God is providing. This is the very reason why Paul says, if you don't work, you should not eat. And herein lies the principle that the Proverbs are shouting loudly. Laziness is not just someone's makeup that we sort of laugh off and deal with. Laziness is a sin. It's a moral issue. It's a spiritual issue that must be eliminated from our lives. We want to blame a lot of things, but at the end of the day, we have to say that the Bible is true. Laziness is an issue of the heart. A refusal to work in whatever capacity the Lord has provided and called us to and gifted us in, if we don't do that, it is a sin. You are a sluggard, you are a fool, and you need to repent. And if you love sleep and hate work and neglect work so you can have more sleep, you're a sluggard. Now listen, there are situations in people's lives where they're unemployed because they're disabled or because of other legitimate circumstances, and they're not lazy. There are other situations where someone is diligently looking for work, and their work is trying to find work. There's all sorts of different kinds of work, as we said before, so it doesn't always involve going to an office or on a job site uh, that you're doing work. But let's be honest. In our culture, those who want to work in general, God will provide for so you see, the issue of work is an ethical issue. It, I know we didn't talk much about those who are workaholics, and I'm certain a few of those may be here in our midst this morning, but the heart of the issue is the same. It's a moral and spiritual issue in which work is either thought of too low or too high, both lacking in genu- genuine gospel transformation in terms of how we think about work. And so you may hear all of this and think, well, anybody can do this. Anyone can just go and change their behavior and all of it would fall into place. But not so fast. Remember the Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 2, we saw several weeks ago, that in Christ are hidden the treasure of wisdom and knowledge. So only in Christ can we understand work in its proper context, right? Only in Christ can we understand what is ultimately wise. The unconverted man, the unconverted woman cannot understand their work rightly because they do not know the one in whom the treasures of wisdom and knowledge dwell. And so work is something other for them than what God intends it to be. It may be in part. It provides their needs. It provides for their needs. It's providing something for the community perhaps. But it's not the full breadth of what God intends work to be. Even if from an earthly perspective, a a man is the best worker we know. He works hard, he does good work, he loves his job. We must agree with Scripture that his motivation for work, his pursuits of work, are still opposed to God. But when the gospel changes a person, their entire outlook on life changes. Our entire outlook on work changes. For the workaholic... They no longer seek to find their identity in their job because they know their identity is in Christ. For the sluggard, they no longer see work as a drudgery and a curse, but they understand it as a gift, albeit filled with difficulties. The Christian will live life in such a way as to not bring reproach to the name of Christ. 
but will instead execute all of their duties in life in such a way that Christ is honored and Christ is exalted. Listen, brothers and sisters, we may not be the best at what we do, but we should work to be that way. Christians ought to be the hardest workers on any job that there are because we're not working for men. We're working for the Lord. Paul's admonition must be taken seriously. Whatever you do, do heartily, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. And so that's where we are left this morning. What about us? Do we recognize work as a gift from God that we can be thankful for? Now, if you're not a Christian, no doubt at the end of the day, you don't see it as a gift from God. You see it as something you do in your own. But I promise you, in the end, it will be fully and wholly unfulfilling. Whatever you're working for, whatever you're working toward, whether it's more money or, or more recognition or a promotion or a new boat or a new house or whatever it is, it's not going to bring the satisfaction. It's not going to be this, the fulfillment that you're seeking after that can only be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever it is we are working for can only be found ultimately in knowing and trusting and loving and abiding in the Lord Jesus Christ. All throughout the history of mankind, men and women have worked really hard to try and gain that which only Christ can provide. And so if you're not in Christ this morning, how do you find purpose and meaning in a life of work? in a life of chores, surrounded by thorns and thistles, surrounded by difficulties and trials. It's only by faith in Christ. It's only in Him that we know why it matters, because it's a gift from God that He's given us to utilize the things of this earth to bring glory to Him, to bring meaning and purpose into our lives as they're lived through and in Him. And so what about all of us? Is your work a gift of God? Are you thankful for it? Do you do the best of your ability? Do you utilize the means that God has given to bring glory to Him and to bring good to those you work with and for? Listen, this doesn't mean you'll necessarily love everything about the job that you do. It may be tough. You may have a harsh and hard boss. You may have difficult co-workers. There's all kinds of things that come as a result of our work. But we need to look beyond that. We need to continue to see that this is God's gift that I can continue to live and provide. And I can continue to find meaning in this world, providing a service or providing whatever it is that I provide to those that I'm called to live and serve for. And so even on your worst days in the office or at home, whatever your work is, is it still a gift to you? Is it still a gift to you? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenges that often come to us in your word. Lord, our work can be hard. It can be difficult. And and we recognize that the difficulties that come are as a result of the fall. But just because the fall happened does not mean you've relieved us from the responsibilities of work. Lord, some of the greatest things that have come in this world as gifts from you have come through the hard work of men and women. And so we pray, Lord, that you help us to recognize that what you call us to 
is not to be sluggards, to not be lazy, to not make excuses, to not be procrastinators, and to not despise what you have given to us, but to embrace it and to love it and to enjoy it for what it is, a gift from you that we can utilize, that we can utilize to serve others, to serve our own families, to serve our community, to support and serve the church and the gospel uh, mission of bringing uh, the, the word to the ends of the earth, whatever it is that you call us to in all of these areas, may we do it heartily as unto you and not unto man. May our work be something that we wake up tomorrow morning to do with joy in our hearts, not because of the task itself, but because of what the task represents and because of the results that it brings in bringing glory to you, working hard as your children for your glory. We pray you do all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.